Hello, I'm Daniel. And I'm Liz. And welcome to A Dose of Dizzy. Your accessible but digestible dose of vestibular research. Hello, welcome to another month and another episode of A Dose of Dizzy. We're so excited you're joining us and happy November. Oh, it's finally November. We're really excited today to highlight ocular motor testing and more specifically uh, ocular motor testing in the pediatric population. There's actually been an increase of interest in pediatric vestibular testing. And when we're talking testing the vestibular system, you're talking about ocular motor testing as well. So why do we care about evaluating the eyes when we are measuring the vestibular system or that inner ear balance system? Well, the eyes are the window into the vestibular system. So in order for us to make accurate inferences or accurate um, determinations about what the inner ear is doing, we need to rule out any central abnormalities or any issues with the eyes. And so during that most common um, vestibular test, VNG, we have a series of different ocular motor tests that we will put the patient through just to really ensure that what we measure beyond that point is a representation of the vestibular system. Absolutely. And we thought we'd start today by just providing a brief overview of what is included in typical ocular motor testing, not only what we test, but also what we're looking at and what measurement parameters we're concerned with. So there's really four main ocular motor subtests, gaze, saccades, smooth pursuit, and optokinetics. So we'll start with gaze. Gaze is the ability to maintain your eyes fixed on a visual target that's not moving. So it's sitting still as well. And, you know, real life example, putting a sticky note up on the wall in front of you, sitting still and keeping your eyes focused on that sticky note is a great example of how you're maintaining gaze on that target. And with gaze testing, we usually measure it in four different positions. We measure it um, gaze to the right, gaze to the left, gaze up and gaze down. And on the surface, gaze testing may seem pretty simple, like a pretty simple task. Um, But gaze testing um, itself is dependent on many underlying neural structures. So it is a very complex interaction um, between the vestibular cerebellum um, and the visual system. And what we're mainly looking for is are any involuntary eye movements during any of those positions, um, including nystagmus. Um, And if we remember, nystagmus is that Um, rhythmic oscillation of the eyes and if any involuntary eye movements are seen we will then try to differentiate whether those eye movements are indicative of a peripheral or central impairment. Definitely and you know one thing to keep in mind about uh, gaze nystagmus is there is something called endpoint nystagmus so it's important that you control for how far especially to the right or left the patient is looking during gaze because you can dip into um, some involuntary eye movement just due to the maximum deflection of the eyes one way or the other. The second main subtest is something called saccades, and this is a test where the patient is seated in front of a stimulus that's randomly moving around a screen, and you instruct the patient to follow the stimulus with their eyes, and they're making quick and accurate movements as the the target moves randomly around the screen. Um, Something real life I thought of that's kind of similar to this movement, especially if you're from the Midwest, you may be sitting in the dark on a summer night and you see a lightning bug randomly moving around in the dark. And so the ability of your eyes to capture in on that light and follow it as it randomly moves around is a good example of a psychotic eye movement. That's a great example is 
the saccades um, themselves are both voluntary and reflexive. Mm -hmm. um, there's three different measurement parameters that we um, mainly look for during this exam. First is going to be latency, which is how long does it take that patient to initiate that saccade um, when that saccade is presented um, at a new position. And the second two are more of that reflexive uh, component. Uh, first is going to be velocity, so how quick is that saccade um, being made? And second, how accurate is that saccade at tracking that moving target? Um, like gaze testing, there's a lot of um, underlying neural structures involved. There are two main neurons involved in uh, generating saccades. The first um, is going to be our burst neurons, which is responsible for that initial position. So when a new saccade or when a new target is presented, that initial um, initiation of that saccade, known as a pulse, um, those burst neurons are responsible for um, as opposed to our omnipause neurons, which is responsible for the second phase in that saccade, which is known as the step, and that's responsible for that's responsible for maintaining that neural discharge, and maintaining that um, visual eye movement on that moving target. And so these are sort of the the different things that we're we're looking for when we're um, asking patients to make saccadic eye movements. And a lot of the systems these days, of course, are using uh, mostly horizontal saccadic movements, but there are some tests that do both vertical and horizontal saccades. And along with looking at latency, velocity, and accuracy of those movements, um, there's also some comparison, which is really nice to see for rightward moving targets and leftward. So you can even see differences between symmetry of the direction of the moving target. Our third main subtest is going to be smooth pursuit. Now, unlike our um, target behavior during gaze testing or saccade testing where it's jumping around or moving randomly, we actually have a smooth motion of our target moving from back uh, from um, side to side. Um, usually starts off at a slower uh, level, um, a lower frequency, and it gets faster as we go along. So there's a couple of different um, things that we measure during smooth pursuit. Um, and but I'm first. I'm going to have Liz give a great real life example. <laughs> I always try to think of the most profound examples. But if you're sitting in the park and you're watching a patient, a patient, a kid swing back and forth on a swing, um, your ability to watch the kid going back and forth on the swing is similar to a smooth per pursuit type eye movement because it may start out faster and you're watching back and forth and maybe they slow down as they lose a little momentum. Again, same smooth pursuit system that we see in testing. Yep. And, you know, primarily if you're watching that swing back and forth, it is going to be more of a voluntary eye movement. It does rely on a lot of um, underlying neural structures, just like any of the other tests that we've talked about. Um, and there's several different measurement parameters that we um, are looking for as well. For sure. And I think you bring up a good point about it being a voluntary eye movement because that makes it very predictive. Like the patient, and you'll probably notice this if you're testing patients regularly, but they know it's going to go left and then it's going to go right. And that can be a challenge for patients to stick right on the target and not jump ahead of it or lag behind. But ultimately what we're looking for, one of our main measurement parameters is we want to know the gain of the eye movement. So how closely does the eye follow the target as it moves left to right? Is it going too far? Is it not going far enough? Uh, we're also 
looking qualitatively for any psychotic intrusions or maybe uh, involuntary nystagmus or kind of jerking eye motion as they're following the target. And again, you can look at rightward versus leftward word cycles at a number of different speeds or frequencies. So you start out nice and slow. Maybe a patient does fine at a nice slow target going back and forth. But as the target increases in speed, that's where the system breaks down and is unable to keep up with the target. Our fourth and final subtest is going to be optokinetics or OPKs. Um, now, OPKs are definitely a little bit more reflexive. Um, the reflexive eye movements generated by a large visual scene. Um, and Liz, I'm going to take the real life example on this one. Perfect. <laughs> um, if you think of almost like watching a train go by, um, how you're sort of just counting each car as it goes by on that track, that is going to be generating this reflexive eye movement known as optokinetics. Um, generally, this reflexive eye movement is generated during a more of a full-filled um, visual scene, meaning the larger the targets, the moving targets in front of you, um, the more amount that, that those targets take up your entire visual field, um, the more authentic the optokinetic response is going to be. For sure, like if you have a closed uh, VNG or rotary chair system, you are able to put it from literally floor to ceiling, either black and white stripes, or you may see white dots going around the whole um, internal portion of that ro enclosed rotational chair. I know this is not necessarily possible at all of our sites. Uh, many people have a screen, so you try to make it as large of a stimulus as possible. But ultimately, you know, the optokinetic system is actually pretty similar and shares some of the same neural pathways as the smooth pursuit system. So it can it can be a very nice check um, for your smooth pursuit testing. Um, ultimately, we're looking for asymmetry between leftward and rightward targets. And of course, we're evaluating gain of the actual reflexive eye movement. So now that we have an understanding of some of the basics of ocular motor testing, uh, for the vestibular system, we sort of now want to highlight a couple of papers, more recent papers, um, that have come out on the topic. The first is an excellent paper by uh, Stephen Dodal and Devin Kazan in 2018, followed by a normative study in 2020 that looked at um, saccades and smooth pursuit in children from 5 to 17 years. And um, we'll be posting the full sources on our Instagram page, and we highly encourage you um, to read those um, when you get the chance. And so beyond uh, just ocular motor testing, these two papers looked specifically at the pediatric population. So starting with that first paper in 2018, it's titled Ocular Motor Testing in Children. It was a really comprehensive look at what may be different, everything from testing protocols to actual findings between uh, children and adults. So three major takeaways. One, they found that there was more artifact in children's responses than in adults, which totally makes sense if you are working with pediatrics in any capacity. Second, uh, three main measurement parameters that were different was one, in saccades, they found longer latencies in children. Two, in smooth pursuit, they found reduced gain. And three, in optokinetics, they, they found increased asymmetry. 
Last thing uh, is they found or they recommended that you have age match controls when testing pediatric oculomotors in general to account for changes that may be different between pediatrics and adults. And when you think about it, of course, uh, the pediatric population is different. They're still developing a lot of the neural pathways that are used to initiate all these eye movements and maintain the eye movements are still in development uh, in pediatrics under the age of 18 or 21. And so it's important to understand and account for those changes. And we'll be talking this uh, about this in a little bit more great, uh, a little bit more detail later on in the podcast, but we'll be also discussing some ways that you can customize your pediatric protocols. Um, you know, things that, you know, modify testing, just like with hearing how we have to go about things a little differently to work, um, to accommodate the population that we're working with. Um, same thing here some different strategies that you can implement in the clinic. The second paper came out this year, 2020, in JAAA, and the title of it is Normative Values of Saccades and Smooth Pursuit in Children Ages 5 to 17 Years. So we're going to go into some more detail about this paper. So this was a prospective cross-sectional study that took place over 24 months, meaning they looked across age. They have four different um, age groups, uh, 5 to 8, 9 to 11, 12 to 14, and finally 15 to 17 years. Um, 120 participants uh, were included in the study, all of which uh, who had normal hearing um, and underwent some vestibular assessments prior. Um, some assessments included some functional balance measures such as the Romberg and tandem gait. Uh, vestibular evaluation um, only consisted of some bithermal calorics. Um, so once, and, and children ex were excluded if they failed any of these measures prior to the testing. Um, conjugate eye movement testing was performed, meaning they just wanted to make sure that um, the eyes moved together, uh, followed by regular calibration, um, the same calibration that we would do prior to the start of any ocular motor test. Um, conventional saccades were performed where we're looking across those three measurement parameters, latency, velocity, and accuracy, followed by smooth pursuit which they performed at only one speed, uh, 0.3 hertz, um, but looking at um, the gain um, for that test. So ultimately, um, the results for psychotic testing was consistent with previous literature. They found that there was an effective age on the latency of the psychotic eye movement. Um, and what they found was there were longer latencies in younger ages, and as the patients got older, their latencies uh, became shorter. There was no effect on velocity or accuracy of psychotic eye movements. With pursuit, they found, again, consistent with what we've talked about, pursuit gain increases with age. So that's, uh, again, the, the gain is the amount of eye movement in relation to the target. So gain increased with age. So all in all, there are um, some papers that have looked at uh, pediatric ocular motor testing, or at least try to establish some norms. Um, some have looked at some of the early age ranges, for like four to six. Others have looked at more of a, um, across the entire age range. But this was probably one of the few papers that have tried to really do a, a, a nice cross-sectional design looking at multiple age groups um, in the pediatric population. That being said, there are a few limitations. Uh, first being that bithermal calorics were, was uh, pretty much the only determination for normal vestibular function in this study and um, 
based on what we know about the vestibular system, calorics are mainly going to be looking at that horizontal semicircular canal and superior vestibular nerve. So if there's any other impairments um, affecting the vestibular system that aren't along those um, pathways um, may, may have been missed um, during this um, study. The second being that smooth pursuit is uh, was tested at 0.3 hertz, and what we know about smooth pursuit testing, you usually use a few different frequencies um, as opposed to the single frequency design in this study of 0.3. And probably the most obvious limitation was this did look at saccades and smooth pursuit, which, as we discussed at the beginning, are just two out of four of the ocular motor subtests that we use in a typical VNG. Ultimately, you know, many people who are just starting to see pediatrics or haven't yet seen pediatrics in the vestibular world, main question that a lot of people ask is what modifications do I need to make for testing the pediatric population? So we're going to talk through some of those now, not only from the paper as recommendations, but also from some pediatric vestibular audiologists. So the first one um, is the recommendation to use pediatric VNG goggles. Um, of course, we need to sort of account for the smaller head size in this population. But if, um, if you don't have pediatric VNG goggles, not the end of the world, um, you could make some modifications to the standard VNG goggles. Um, we had the recommendation of using cotton pads on the nose bridge to help fill in some of those gaps, help um, fit more standard VNG goggles on um, the pedi uh, pediatric patient. Second, um, more pediatric-focused protocols include using a more um, a different stimulus. So if we think of our target that we've been discussing um, throughout this podcast, instead of, you know, maybe a, a, a standard target, we can use more of a more of an interesting target that would be that would help keep um, those pediatric patients focused. So example, I know some manufacturers um, allow for the use of Mr. Potato Head, so that's definitely much more interesting than maybe a red dot um, on the wall. And finally, um, the article does discuss modifying some testing parameters, such as your time windows at which you're measuring these responses. Um, but that being said, if that is something that um, you are going to do, you do have to consider that when comparing to normative data. Ultimately, you know, one of the main recommendations from the Dodal paper in 2018 and from pediatric audiologists was altering your instructions because you need to keep pediatrics focused and understanding of the task. So, you know, one recommendation we heard was turning oculomotor testing into a game. So you may um, say, follow the dot, he's going to jump like a grasshopper. You keep your eyes on him as he jumps around. Um, the other thing is pretending your eyes are like lasers. You have to stare super hard at the dot to make it jump around. So you just have to be creative uh, and kind of play off of the patient's interests and be really flexible because you may have to repeat tests often or repeat your instructions in a different manner to make it effective. And that brings us to our last and final segment of the episode, uh, which is our case study. And I'll go ahead and let Liz introduce it. Absolutely. So I'm not going to give too much information about the case study for this month, but a few clues. It is a 16-year-old. I found a very common oculomotor abnormality. 
Um, that's seen frequently in children. Sometimes they're born with it, but also is seen very, very, very frequently post head injury or post concussion. So I encourage you to go to the Instagram. I'm going to be posting some details about the case in the next coming days and weeks and uh, see if you can figure out what's going on. And with that, that concludes our this month's episode of a Dose of Dizzy podcast. Uh, follow us on Instagram. Um, keep an eye out for questions regarding the case. And we hope you enjoyed this episode as much as we did. Absolutely. And also check out our stories. We tend to put some quiz questions on there about um, our topic for the month. And if you have any suggestions, comments, questions, feel free to send us a message. We'll see you next month. Bye.